welcome to episode number eight of Acquiring Scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo, and on this episode, we have Matt Curry. He is the co-founder of Outflow, a lead generation firm that helps mergers and acquisition professionals close more deals by delivering exclusive guaranteed deal opportunities. He co-founded, scaled, and exited a multiple seven-figure business within 18 months and also works with Fortune 1000s, tech giants, and global brands by creating marketing and sales systems that scale revenue. Hey Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks man. Happy to be here. Excited. Yes, man. This is going to be fun. We were just uh, chatting briefly about a couple things that we have in common. Uh, we're going to be talking about buying and selling businesses. So uh, I'm excited to chat about your journey and also what is it that you guys are working on right now. So if you want to go ahead and share what is it that you are working with Outflow. And of course, we definitely want to talk about your journey on selling your past business. Yeah, yeah. Right now. So I'm a co-founder of a company called Outflow. And uh, what we specialize in is helping mergers and acquisition professionals close more deals by us getting more meetings and appointments with their ideal prospects. So that includes investment banks or private equity shops primarily. So if it's investment banks, if they're looking for sell side or buy side clients, we go out and find those those clients that are looking to other seller, uh, sell their business or looking to acquire a business. And we bring those to the table for the investment banks or private equity side. Obviously, they're looking for acquisition targets. And so we go find those off market exclusive acquisition targets for them and uh, bring those opportunities to the table. So uh, something that me and my co-founder have been really passionate about, and that's the drum we're beating lately, and it's it's been exciting and fun. Yeah, and what where are your clients based? Are they primarily here in the U.S., Canada, or yeah, we have with a couple firms in the in Canada, but it's um, I'm personally Canadian. I'm Eastern. I'm on the from Eastern Canada here in Nova Scotia, but we're primarily in the U.S. So all of them are are in a variety of different states. I work with a few in California, North Carolina you know, Washington, it's just, we're all over the board. So it is prominently US based. And like I said, we have a couple of folks in Canada as well, such as British Columbia and Ontario. So why Outflow? Why do you guys decided to create the company and the service? Good, good question. So it's been something that we, me and my co-founder, we actually started the business with another gentleman back a while ago as a generalist lead generation company. And one thing we, me and my co-founder are really, really good at is booking, book, we're, we're really good at reaching out in the marketplace and securing meetings with, with practically anyone. And so we found a niche where we're really good at when we owned our last company, which was working with M&A professionals. We kind of accidentally kind of sprung up, sprung about getting, just found out we're really good at it. So when we when we actually sold that company, we, we when we started this company called Outflow, we only decided to work with um, those organizations specifically, the M and A professionals. And the reason why we named it Outflow to answer your question specifically is because one lesson I've learned from my last organization, the last company I was involved with, was if you want inflow, if you want something coming into you, if you want opportunities, deals, money, whatever it may be, you need to Outflow something, right? And so what we say is we outflow, we go out into the marketplace, we outflow who you are and bring in flow the deal opportunities. So that's kind of the essence behind our, our name and uh, kind of the origin story a little bit. I love it. I get excited and, I, and I'm going to be linking in the show notes really well, very practical article that Matt published on kind of like the different ideas for deal flow and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I mean, I know you guys, you probably have like uh, a super type process and and that's what you guys offer so what, but what's your business model is it a subscription or is it uh what do you offer for for this firms 
Yeah, great question. So generally speaking, when it comes to investment banking and private equity, there's a big problem in that space that, that they're fairly annoyed with in general, which is the first one is um, exclusive deal opportunities. So there's a lot that goes on in that space where people, other intermediaries or centers of influence will go out and find a potential seller and they'll float it around to a couple of their investment banks or a couple of the private equity shops. And the problem with that is that it kind of turns into an auction process where, you know, it's not exclusive and these IBs or these or these um, private equity groups are kind of bidding on getting their work or they have to really try to hard sell them into, you know, the next step. You know, investment banks is a different thing than obviously private equity, but they're both trying to compete in a way to to get that deal. And so what we do is we take that we take that out of the equation. We're only exclusively um, getting those off market deals for them. So we reach out in the marketplace for buy or sorry sellers that aren't maybe not even thinking of selling, but we open that conversation for them and bring it to the table. That's number one is exclusivity, and number two is is regarding the fee structure. Is there's a it's very expensive process when a finder's fee occurs. I think that generally speaking, the average price point right now for lower middle market for a finder's fee, I may be incorrect on this, so don't guys don't quote me on this. But I think it's like it's in the six figures, very low six figures, maybe anywhere between eighty to to upwards to a mid one hundred and some odd thousand dollars. Because when a deal closes at that size, a uh, finder's fee occurs. We take that problem out of the equation for private equity groups and investment banks, where we are on a, a subscription basis. Generally, it's anywhere between. $1,500 on a month-to-month basis, and we actually guarantee results or up to $2,500 a month for a more premium pro, uh, concierge program. Phenomenal. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think uh, even though like right now in the market, there's you know all kinds of different opportunities, people yeah. are afraid to reach out and to get in touch with potential sellers. I think that's one of the, the most difficult things. So I, I have a bunch of questions for you already in terms of outflow mm-hmm. and, and what you guys do and but I wanted to share something that you mentioned before we started recording that, you know, selling a business, I, I, I would love to hear, you know, some of that journey. Like a lot of people get that fantasy of like, wow, the next exit and it's sexy and it's cool. But you were yeah. saying uh, something, you may have a different perspective. Yeah. So tell us about the company and anything that you would like to share about your insights. Yeah, no, for sure. So um, the company I started, was called Digital Kryptonite. Actually, it was founded by a gentleman named John Whiting. And then myself, Matt Curry, and Jason Dodd, based in Boise, we kind of we we got involved on an equity side. So we were co-founders with John on that, and we were a B two B lead generation company. So we specialized in a variety of. Uh, we actually weren't a specialist; we're more of a generalist, and we scaled that fairly quickly. We worked with a w- wide variety of sales reps, individual sales reps, all the way to larger enterprise SaaS companies, if you will. And it was always business to business. And so we grew that fairly rapidly in the first year. We got up to um, seven figures in our first year within our first 12 months, even probably under that. I think in the first 10 months, we got to, to our seven-figure mark. And then around month 18, even earlier, we had a run rate of multiple seven figures. And so during that period of time, we were working with a group in Los Angeles who actually acquired us. And they had a different, they had a model where they had a revenue share model that went on for their clients. So they would service their clients and they would take a piece of the client's revenue and they were using us as the business to generate leads for their for their for their clients. And so rather it was a very smart strategy they had, which was, well, hey, well, rather than just paying these guys, why don't we just buy the talent in-house? Right? Why don't we just bring it in-house? Why don't we buy our vendors, if you will? Um, so super, super smart idea. We yeah, so around month 18, like I said, we it was actually at a nice transition point where our, our CEO at the time was focused on potentially moving in a, dif- a different direction anyway. And uh, Jason and I, were, were we were all kind of figuring out how do we shuffle the equity around? You know, do we want to kind of have someone else head up the direct, uh, kind of direct the company? 
and we kind of shuffle things around. And these guys actually reached out to us at a, at a nice time. And their, their goal was obviously to bring us in house. And in hindsight, looking back, that actually, what's funny is that we were really excited. We're like, here we go, guys. We hustled. We got to the, you know, we, we had fast growth. We had a lot of challenges as well. I'm not going to hide that whatsoever. But I think a lot of people flash the, you know, especially you see a lot of these internet marketing gurus like, hey, you know, seven figure business, blah, blah, blah. When maybe they've hit a, they maybe only hit a month of $84,000 and they say, oh yeah, I want the seven figure mark. We legit hit seven figures, but here's the thing. We had some challenges as well, right? We had churn problems with our clients. We had a, a variety of different things that we were working on. And that caused the, the, a lot of challenges during the acquisition side, obviously in due diligence as well. I think there's a lot of things that we could have done better preparing for that acquisition. And I think that there's a lot of things that, that the buyer could have done better as well during the acquisition phases too. So we did eventually get, get acquired. It, it was uh, an interesting process to go through. It was exciting. It was fun. It was drama for everyone. And just, you know, when, when you're doing multiple seven figures, which is still a relatively small company, there's still a lot of people involved in a service side of business. So that was a, a bit of an emotional toll on everyone. And uh, the stakes rose and there was time constraints against us, all of us, you know, there's time constraints involved and stuff. And it just kind of became a, a bit of an emo- emotional roller coaster going through it. So we did end up exiting and, and that was probably about seven or eight months ago as of today. I think that's always like the emotional cost is something that it's not yeah. factoring. Nobody really talks about it. So I appreciate that insight. Now, is there any two or three things that you will think like if you could go back, you were to sell now a different company, what are some of the two or three things that you would like to have in place or do that you didn't necessarily get to do with that last exit? I think there's a lot of things um, looking back in hindsight. And the first thing is I probably would have had more rigorous preparations on our financial statements. Uh, we tracked a lot of things and we tracked a lot of things well. However, there was, there was some, there were some things shuffled around, not in a deceptive way, but there was things that just weren't clean in our financials that we could have probably done a better job tracking of. And it made a lot of questions pop up and drag things out. And when you're in the process of an acquisition of, or a merger of any sort, um, when you're constantly being questioned and asking for new information, and you know, I understand and we all understood, but it always kind of feels like you're in an interrogation process and it just drags things on. It makes people anxious. So I think number one is know your numbers, have them prepared, make sure that you always know, like you have those set of financials ready and make sure that you have your, you know, trailing as far back as you possibly can, have them clean, have them concise, have things prepared as if you were going to sell to a private equity group, I'd say have certain metrics that they'd want to see. It's clear, it's clean. You know, you know, your numbers, I think is really critical. I, on top of that, I probably would have prepared some kind of, of 12 or 24 month pro forma or a trend analysis of future assumptions with some kind of strong story behind on why that's going to be the case. Just because they have their own reasons on why they want to buy. And I think you need to tailor your story and stuff to that, not to be manipulative, but you need to understand why they want to buy in order to maximize your exit value as well. And make sure things are, are you know, structured in a way to kind of say, hey, look, here's where we were going to go. Here's the path you could go from, you know, here's our projections and here's our pro forma moving forward. On top of that, I think we spent a lot of time as a, as a company under due diligence of just ask, answering a bunch of questions for, for this buyer. And I think we should, I think we could have spent more time understanding what they wanted as an organization, right? That's really important during an acquisition is you're going to do a delicate, a delicate, a delicate dance, if you will, on negotiating, if you will, it's a sales process at the end of the day, Uh, you're selling your business, they're buying it, you guys are both selling, you're really both selling If there's, there's really as the buyer, they're the salespeople. 
And we should have done a better job, I think, at, at asking more questions and being more rigorous through that process of what mattered to the buyer and structuring things that way. And I just think on top of that, maybe this sounds kind of, this might not sound critical, but I think it is important. I think having a, a pitch deck of some sort of who your company is and kind of having a company overview is really important to people because it kind of gives the insight of who the organization is, what's your cultures, what's the story behind it, um, what's the vision, what's the traction, things like that. What are the unique economics? What's the critical path moving forward and stuff of, of what the plans are and, and things like that. And what have been the ups and downs and what constraints have you got over? So I think those are some things just as the seller that I would have done in hindsight. Um, it's easy it's easy to to say that, but looking back, that's come some things that I think we could have prepared better to have, a, a, I think, a better structured exit, if you will. And in terms of after the exit, is there something that you think that you would like to prepare? Because I know after that, there's always a bunch yeah. of other emotions and 100%. a bunch of other thoughts. Yeah, I think, so the biggest thing I would definitely say is culture alignment is huge. The big problem with the, with our exit was we there was a there was an unnecessary time constraint. We rushed through things, and they had unanswered questions, and we had uh, we had unanswered questions, and we just all went ahead anyway. And even though we're both still relatively smaller companies, like I said, there's lots of people involved, right? When when there's two service organizations, pretty much doing, there's no such thing as an acquisition, really. There, it's a merger because you're merging cultures together, right? And when when you have a service based business there's a lot of people and they're both service-based organizations. There's a lot of people and you've got to be careful on what you're telling both the employees, stakeholders, equity, things like, like just equity and all that stuff. And when it's not ironed out well before an, some kind of integration of some sort, culture clash can destroy everything because at the end of the day, I, I believe great businesses are built by great people. And it's, it's not great products. I, I think a great product is, is, a, is a critical component from that, but it comes from having great, unbelievable people. And when people are not, when they're, when they're emotional and they're, people are emotional anyway, but when there's, when there's unnecessary strife at times and stuff and people are stressed and promises aren't being made or they're misinterpreted in a certain way, it causes things to go into chaos mode. So we, we've had a lot of culture problems during that, acquisition and trying to get things shuffled around and figured out as well. Number two is I would I would also be careful of who buyers are because you want to make sure that when you're being acquired, they actually understand your company, right? Like they understand who you guys are as an organization and they have a proven track record um, as an organization themselves or they, they, they understand it very deeply. They have deep domain expertise to take it to the next step. Because things will fall apart. They will fall apart if if what wh whoever's absorbing that you know there's a collision of of culture, right? It's a clock a clock uh, a collision, and something's going to take over something else. So whoever's taking over needs to be an experienced team and and have that vision and understanding of how do we shift. And leadership is absolutely critical at that point. Is look into the leadership. Who's buying this? Who are these people? What's their track record? Let's look into things. Let's talk to references. Let's talk to their, you know what I mean? Like in due diligence, yes, you want the buyer to talk to your clients and, and, and have references, but I'm telling you, the, the buyer, you got to do just as much due diligence on them as well, I'd say, to make sure that's transitioned properly because you want to take care of your people and you want to make sure that you're, uh, if you're doing things right, you want to take care of your people and you want to make sure that the baby you've built, your business, 
is uh, is is going to you know kind of live that legacy that you want it to, or at least see it kind of move into a direction that that's positive. Nobody really wants to talk about this because it's especially not the brokers or no. not even the sellers. It's not necessarily beneficial, and and it's fair to say that yes, the buyers may be having. You know, there's the feeling like, oh my gosh, we gotta please the buyer because we wanna we wanna yeah. go through the deal. But at the same time, like you're saying, it's totally fair, and I think the industry will evolve into a place, especially not the the private equity industry, but more in the internet acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And I, I would love to ask you about that as well because you're saying that you're working with investment banking, private equity, mm -hmm. but now there's this small world mm -hmm. online acquisitions. They're typically smaller deals where yeah, they're seven figure businesses, but we're talking about Profit or SDE in terms of a hundred thousand dollars a year to a million dollars. Those are smaller deals that private yeah. equity don't necessarily want to invest in that. And, and of course there are different players and there, there's different people involved, but I'm curious to know if that's an industry that you guys still personally or as a company wanting to, to engage with. I mean, like since we're primarily, I mean, we work with business brokers as well. We work with business brokers, investment banks and private equity, and they're all operating at different levels. Right. And so, We do work with business brokers. They are dealing with smaller organizations, like you mentioned, that are kind of doing that $100,000 in seller discretionary earnings. And then when you kind of get up, which is basically, like you said, it's just profit. And then when you get up into more of the investment banks, which are dealing more in the lower middle market, which is around that $2 million in revenue to $50 million, or more of the $5 to $50 million range of, of revenue. That's where we like to play, just because it makes more sense in a perspective of, of the price point for our service. It's, it's, they don't need as much volume to get deals done as well. So with a business broker, they might need to kiss more frogs when we generate deal opportunities for them to actually have something close. And here's the thing I've learned this from a mentor that I think both you and I both have this mutual mentor, which is Roland Frazier, which is, you know, it takes just as much energy to buy a, a, 10, million, a $10 million company as it does to buy a $100,000 a year company. So for us, it's kind of like, hey, you know, we, we, we can service the brokers still, But, you know, we can get them 20 leads and 19 of the 20 might not be, you know, might be a lot of frogs, but with the, with the, bro with the, the IBs, we might get 10 great deal opportunities for them. And, you know, if, if one of them is really good, then that's totally worth it for them. The unit economics for our service makes sense for them. So we like to kind of operate in that lower middle market of the, the 5 million or Like we'll, we'll, we'll kind of play in the, the, the early like $2 million a, a year in revenue mark up to the, the $50 million. Uh, we do have some bigger players that are looking to go all the way up to, you know, a billion dollars in enterprise value and, and you know, kind of, kind of up in those, up, up in those uh, bigger tranches, if you will. But the, the private equity also, same thing. It's, it's easy to work with those guys as well because, hey, we're reaching out on behalf of them to buy a business. So when someone is the direct person reaching out to buy you, it makes the, the process very easy. And, and we're working with a variety of different groups in there. We, there's a lot of fragmentation in a few different industries. One specifically is healthcare. And there's a lot of different healthcare private equity groups we work with and, and a variety of different sleeves and verticals. So for example, ophthalmology or dental, if you will. And we are reaching out to private dental practices that have uh, multi-location. We've even did a roll-up strategy for a few of them and helped them open new territories in different states. So these are relatively small businesses, right? You know, some dental offices can only at capacity run 500K to a million dollars a year which will only get you to that $100,000 or $200,000 a year in, in seller discretionary earnings. So we're, we do operate in that space, but with the private equity, they're looking for a bigger play, right? They're looking to go in. They might have a platform 
uh, buy where they'll buy one or two or maybe one practice that has three locations and then look to uh, deploy a roll-up strategy within that geographic location and then generally sell that to another acquisition group or another private equity shop, which which we will get them in contact with as well as part of our strategy. So when it comes to to that industry that you mentioned, that, that range or what do we call it? You sell that lower middle market. What would it be below that? Like, so the 100K to a million, yeah. what would it be? <laughs> yeah, under the business workers call it Main Street. I just call it small business, right? It's, you know, in, it. it, yeah, I guess it's just a small business. So uh, just understanding the size of it and, and business brokers don't play in the lower middle market. They play on Main Street, right? I don't say that disparagingly. It's just the terminology that, that they like to use. So uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's businesses that are, that are, you know, doing early seven figures or, or uh, multiple six figures. And those are, you know, they, those, those can be great companies. You know, they have, they have, some of them are tapping into trending markets and stuff. They have, you know, nice traction and they're good opportunities as well. Some of the, 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 the high growth startups in that space are, you know, not cash flowing whatsoever. And, and it's, uh, just kind of a bit ridiculous. I, I see a lot of it going on where, you know, there's these companies doing, you know, two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year, and they've raised a ton of capital. And I get it; they have a lot of great growth potential with you know a great revenue runway of, of potential where they could grow to. But you know, it's just their their negative. You know, their, their cash flow is completely upside down. You know, they're, they're flowing two or three times X cash flow out than they are coming in, and it's you know th- those are not the kind of people that we're we're reaching out to. Not that there's anything wrong with it; it's just a different space. But you know, we do work with. In some of those spaces, larger organizations that might be negative cash flow, such as biotech companies that have a lot of cash outflow due to, you know, different research studies and getting FDA approvals, HIPAA and all this stuff that does their cash pits, right? But they are solving such a big problem that they actually are nice sleeves or acquisition opportunities for different private equity groups or strategic buyers. Yeah, and I want to comment in there because in terms of the startups and that that whole bubble, I remember through my company, I did go through a couple of accelerators, mm-hmm. both in here in the U.S. and also in South America. Mm-hmm. And man, it was funny to see this company making zero money and they raised ten million dollars mm-hmm. and they're on top of the world. And and they feel and they think like, yeah, my company's worth a hundred million dollars, right. and that's just uh, that's just like. It's, it's validated as well when they go and talk to these people and these investment groups, right. venture capital, not not investment right. bankings, but they, they get a BC saying, yeah, yeah, your company's worth 100 million and yeah. I'll give you 10 million. Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying that in the real market, I'm not saying that there's no space for that, yeah. that, there, that there's no room for that. I'm just saying that what you're seeing and what, you, what we're talking about, the private equity world, and mm-hmm. it's more about the profitable companies, yeah. cash flow generating assets, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we got to take things in consideration. Like, Fact of the matter is a lot of a lot of SaaS companies actually don't sell for these 10x revenue multiples or even even a multiples. Actually, generally speaking, believe it or not, um, they mostly sell for a four or five times even a multiples a SaaS company. A lot of people think there's these ridiculous uh, multiples on SaaS, which is true. Some of them are very strategic buyers out there that that are that have a great appetite for your maybe your SaaS company or, or e-commerce or digital enterprise. But those are unicorns, right? Or, or I shouldn't say unicorn because unicorns are, are billion dollar brands, whatever. But I'm, what I'm saying is they're rare. And if you look at the success rate of SaaS, of, of these, not SaaS, I shouldn't use SaaS as an example. It's just been kind of like the startup spaces. Everyone's talking about SaaS these days because of these ridiculous multiples. But like a lot of our clients, especially even operating the lower middle market as a professional investment bank, they might get on the phone with someone that says, oh, well, my competitor sold to Google. It's like, brother, we can, we, we're going to do whatever it takes to get your business sold for as much as possible. But 
those are rare occasions. And it's kind of like what I think Kevin O'Leary says off of Shark Tank. He says, if it doesn't cash flow, just say no. And, you know, yes, there's projections. We can make anything look good on a spreadsheet. But you know what I mean? If, if you've raised all this capital and you have next to no equity left and, and things like that, I mean, that, that, that to me is not a business that's appealing. It's is for other people maybe potentially, but it's not a space that we like to operate in. So now you mentioned Shark Tank. I mean, there's a lot of controversy in companies that have participated in, yeah. in those, you know, TV shows and whatnot, but they still then have to go run a business. It, it's not just the exposure, no. or, you know, it's like, you got to go make it happen in the market. Yeah. Everyone celebrates that raise. I have a lot of friends in that space and they talk about the raise. We've raised this, we've raised that. And, you know, they'll have revenues here on one quarter and then the next quarter it's like next to nothing. And it's like, you know, that to me, that to me cause, cause here's the thing guys, when you're taking equity, when someone takes equity in your company, especially a majority stake, like a, such as an angel or VC, you basically like, you basically have to kill yourself in order to make this thing work. Cause you have now given up a large majority of your control of your company to make something work. And you are now technically working for someone else in a way, because they put their money into it and you're going to do whatever it takes to get that thing back out for them. Right. And that might be what you want. It's very cool. It's exciting stuff because you can change the game. You can change the industry, but you're technically working for someone else at that point, And you're giving up a lot of, you know, a lot of the deal to another organization. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of politics that goes into that space as well. It's, it's a, it's an interesting space. It, it looks fun. It looks exciting. And it is for some people. Once again, for me, it's the, the VC and, the, and the, the big capital raises with negative cash flow is not really my, my full cup of tea. So yeah, that's kind of my perspective on it. There's something to learn from these people, from the VC, from the angels and okay. the accelerators. What I love about them, like, of course, we're talking about outflow, mm -hmm. but something that I noticed that is very powerful from their positioning is that they do have a way to not only create that alpha you're talking about, but also creating that sensation like, oh, I have to apply to an accelerator. So right. people are kind of like begging the BC for an opportunity to pitch right. and raise capital, where in terms of like these companies that want to acquire other people, they have to go and almost beg the other people mm. and say, hey, can I talk to you? So right. I do think it's, it's interesting the way that they position that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think it's working in terms of outreach? So again, I'm going to be making these links in, in the show notes. So yeah. outflow and make sure that if anybody want to talk to Matt about what, what they do and the offers mm -hmm. that they, they provide, definitely reach out to him. But yeah, kind of like what's working, what's not working in terms of mm -hmm. outreach when it comes to buying and selling? Great question. First and foremost is you got to understand exactly who you want to get in front of. The targeting is critical. That's the first and foremost is who, who would buy my business or who do I need to raise capital from and understand exactly who those people are or who do I want to buy, right? So whether it's buy side or sell side, it doesn't matter. If you're trying to sell something to someone or buy something from someone, you got to understand specifically who that ideal target is and who that prospect is. So if I am going to use a traditional business, let's say I'm a, a, a dental practice and I want to exit there's lots of opportunities out there, but if you want to sell for the maximum value, then you kind of look at the marketplace and there's a lot of different buyers out there, but one might be a private equity group. And you got to look for private equity groups that have uh, interest in, in buying companies in the dental space specifically. So why not develop a targeted list of dental acquisition groups, or in other words, dental service organizations is what they're generally called, or private equity groups that have sleeves of healthcare acquisitions and reach out to them directly. And when you reach out, that's the second thing is the messaging. And it's how you position yourself to those individuals. 
And that's, that's, the, that's what we're good at. So we're really good at positioning people in a way that comes across as high status. You're, you're not needy. You have a unicorn. You have something that's special and you have leverage um, walking into a conversation of, hey, look, this is who we are. This is what we got. Do you want to have a conversation? And coming in versus coming from a place of we need this. We want to talk to you. Please get on the phone with us. Boo, boo. I'm crying. I need money or I want to sell. So it's all about how you frame and position yourself. And then lastly, the critical part is you need, to, you, need to, you need to start filling your pipeline. You need to start reaching out. You need to start doing a lot. You need consistency uh, plus volume, right? You need to start reaching out to contacts. You've got to fill, you need to run good process. You need to get people into the top of your pipeline and have transition points on filtering people out. And so you got to be clear inside that outreach as well of clear of, you know, what are your expectations on the call? Who are you? What, what are your expectations? Hey, if you're looking for groups like ours, here's some context, give them some brain crack inside the message as well. That's one thing we do is at the end of the day, we put economics inside of our messages too, to kind of get that interest of that prospect, whether it's a buyer or a seller and get you in front of them in, in a way that you're positioned as more of a prize versus someone's needy walking into a conversation. And I understand that from the person that is willing to sell. What about the, the people that are willing to buy? I know the private equity is the whole position and it's there, but have you worked with any family offices or private investors that are trying to build their own deal flow? Yep. And Or will you work with somebody like that? Like a buyer trying to acquire um, other right. full equity? Okay. So what I would do, once again, I would come from a place of a social connection where you say, hey, look, uh, this is who we are. We were looking, you know, this is what we do. We we're either we either invest or we take companies public like yours or we, or yeah, like invest or buy businesses like yours. Your company came up in research, was really impressed with these things. I'm curious, have you ever considered X, Y, and Z? Or like, you know, have you ever considered a capital raise or a potential exit or whatever it is? The reason why is because this is what we do and then put it, put it in whatever it is. If open to it, happy to run a couple ideas by you. Would you open to a brief call? Does next Thursday work or does next Tuesday work? Thanks, Gabriel or Bob or whoever and do it that way. Because you got to come from a place of, of social connection. You're not needy saying, hey, I want to buy you. You, you got to come on across like kind of like a push pull. Like, hey, have you ever, just curious if you ever considered this. This is what we do. This is how we, uh, this is kind of our initiatives as an organization. Here's some things. Hey, if you're open to it, happy to jump on a call, share a couple ideas with you on what, what we're looking for and uh, see if it makes sense to continue the conversation type thing. So it comes down to that targeting as well. You can filter people outside the messaging too. So number one, you gotta make sure you have a strong database and a strong target audience. So you don't want a bunch of tire kickers, good. Be serious in your messaging and make sure you have the right target market. So if you're looking for dental practices that are doing some kind of amount of revenue, make sure you're not getting these little tiny dental practices inside of your database. Number two, make sure your message articulates what you're looking for without being overwordy, giving too much too soon. And just kind of that push pull pattern that kind of creates that tension and desire and novelty to, for them to want to have a conversation with you. And then lastly is the kind of running that on a day-to-day basis and getting that deal flow pipeline developed that way and just refining things as you go, right? You're going to find little nuances that might not work. Like, hey, actually, I don't like these kinds of companies. Like for example, I'm working with an investment bank that we're actually, I'll stay on buyers. So I'm working with a, a private equity group, for example, they wanted to pivot the size of the, of the dental practices they want to go after. So we didn't just, we just wanted to clean, we just cleaned up the list a little bit. So finding where those chokeholds and bottlenecks are, because that never ends, no matter what it is, right? Your marketing will always have bottlenecks. Your sales will always have bottlenecks. Your fulfillment will always have a bottleneck. It's just constraints pop up along the way and you have to adjust them as you go. So it's just making sure that you're constantly identifying what those bottlenecks are and then ironing them out as you go. It sounds very simple, guys, Like, but it's it's probably 
not that easy. Right. And yeah. that's why I think what, what you guys offer the service, because everything that Matt is just explained right now is kind of like step-by-step. Step. Like literally, if you go and file this thing and you apply and test it and refine it yeah. and tweak it, you will get results. But Outflow definitely as a service uh, provider, it's actually taking a whole lot more work. What do you think it's kind of like the main things that people will benefit from working with you guys instead of trying to do this on their own? It's really keeping an eye on it. So this is a living, breathing organism that's reaching out to real people consistently. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's making sure you're following good process. Like you said, there's three key components, which is, you know, who are you going after? What are you going to say to them? And then how are you going to run that process on a day-to-day basis? You can construct all that on your own, right? You can do all that on your own and you anyone can do pretty much anything they want. It's just a matter of orchestrating the process and executing it on a daily basis and monitoring those critical drivers and KPIs. So working with us, I guess it's funny because I we're looking at opening up potentially another an actual product for our for our clients where we're saying, hey, if you want, we can actually take what we do and we're going to package it up. We're going to find and train a deal origination team and implant, implant them into your organization for pennies on the dollar. And we'll actually unpack everything we're doing and give it to you. And so far the feedback's been, that's good. But I love the handholding that you guys are doing. I love that I can hand it off to you and you just take care of it. Like I come with an idea. Like one guy's like, hey, look, I want to buy Facebook groups. Like I got a call from an investment bank because they had a, um, a client that wants to buy Facebook groups for as a, as a, as a, um, one of their part of their acquisition process because it's, it's, a, it's a channel for them basically. So he would just call me up and said, hey, can you get these Facebook groups? Can you go research and find them? And so him just making a quick phone call to me and being me going, yep, send me over details what you're looking for. We'll go get a handle. They like that. They can just hand it off. You come up with the vision. And then we as the technical experts can apply our strategy or vision as well with you and then execute it and implement it and get the result for you. So it's all about, you know, what, what, you know, you can do this on your own if you want. It's just a matter of what's worth your time. Is it, is it worth that you go figure it out and execute on it and run good process and figure out the nuances of what you've been doing? Or do you want to find a group that you can trust and that you like the deal, the pricing and the economics make sense and the outcome, the output that you get from them is good. And you get to focus on what you want to focus on, which is getting on the phone with your target audience and closing deals. And and it's it's not only the systems and the process. It's like you're saying this. It's the data and the knowledge that you guys have developed for years with your own processes and right. even different companies. Like your whole career, learning, understanding sales psychology, mm-hmm. messaging, and then putting the system. Yeah, it's critical. Right. But yeah, so it makes total sense. It reminds me of different similar services like in the podcast industry like our, our company was a podcast production yeah. company so there are companies trying to offer that service where hey we'll get you guests to your show mm-hmm. like high quality guests and people think like oh it's just sending an email it's not it's way more no, complicated yeah. than yeah. that you know it's, i call it ground game so you got to run good ground game and ground game is not easy it's a lot of work a lot of labor there's a lot of moving parts there's second order consequences too, right? So if you do X and X doesn't fulfill, what's the Y consequence as well? X doesn't just drop out, it affects Y as well. So you gotta figure out, you know, what's the second order consequences of me doing this? Sure, I'll save some money, but what's it costing me to not have someone else do it and handle it as well? And some, we actually turn a lot of people away as well, to, to be honest, because we can just sense that it's just not going to be a good fit because they kind of, they're kind of dancing with, do I want to do it myself too? And we say, Hey, like either give it to us or don't. And, and it's fine either way because we're one thing I've learned is this, that's really critical with businesses is lifetime value is critical. And I want to make sure as a service provider, we're on the same page with our clients and they have a big problem that they just want to have it handled and they trust us. 
And a lot of investment banks that we work with specialize in e-com. They, they have these digital marketing backgrounds. A lot of them do. And, you know, they might be doing direct, um, they might have like that LinkedIn direct outreach or email direct outreach or Facebook, whatever it is. Instagram, they might have all this experience. But what's funny is that they actually just want to hand it off to someone that only lives, breathes and eats that stuff, right? That's all they do. And, you know, they're sending more stuff our way too. Like they want to send us their email marketing copy. They want to send us their um, research that their associates are 100% dedicated to do, but they want to flip it to us to look it over and give insight as well. Because at the end of the day, it's all we do. And, and we're bringing in different ideas from the industries that we've personally worked with in our company. We've worked with 61 different industries. So we work with over 500, 500 different companies across 61 different industries. And on top of that, <clears throat> excuse me, we work with a lot of different investment banks and private equity. And we can share different things that other people are doing to find new deals or source deals or how to position things and frame things because the framing is we send out very simple outreach assets for our clients when they see it like they're like that's very simple but how it's articulated is what's so beautiful and that's what's important too is how do you play that game right yeah absolutely no and i'm definitely going to be looking out for whenever you guys put together uh you know another program like that like a, either a done with you they call it yeah. or do it yourself kind of online training i would love to check that out and i think it's, it will be extremely extremely helpful especially for that group of people like you're saying and the kind of people that we have in the show anyways where private investors like right now like yeah there's a whole wave of opportunities and sadly what we're going through is going to put a lot of traditional business out of the map and but for e-commerce business it's quite the opposite right yeah. and some of these business owners they are not necessarily ready to scale and they may want to just take an opportunity and sell if that's what it's presented to them right yeah, so 100%. now you're switching gears in here and in terms of what you guys have work on so you guys develop the systems and you guys have proven that what do you think it's, it's the future so three five years from now what would you like to do with outflow is that scaling that to working with certain kind of companies or what do you think is the future of outflow so right now that's kind of what we're developing is our vision of what we want one thing i know is never leave your first flow so we have a nice flow right now and i'm just plugging my laptop in we have a nice flow right now that's working well where we're we're acquiring new clients fairly rapidly we're doing we're doing well right now even uh, you know despite kind of what's going on with covid but like you said there's actually a lot of opportunity uh for guys like me as well to help the m a market's actually very active and and Deal flow has increased by 200 or 300% for, for, some, for a lot of our clients. And so we're, we're focused on right now building this business, making sure we do it right and, and you know, grow it in a way where we, we potentially might sell it. We might look at also doing our own deals. And so that's kind of what we're looking at. You know, do we want to, we have different vendors we might acquire, um, different vendors, everything from different service providers or agency providers, or even acquiring different talent in-house that can provide a symbiotic service to what we do. We have some different ideas there. There might be direct competitors that we might want to buy in that specialize in different verticals as well. I have a lot of contacts in that space that kind of mend well symbiotically, like a little nice edge to what we do. So that that's kind of our plan too. I mean, we know how to get in front of deals. That's the good news. And we know how to talk deal to, to, to people. We know what to look for after just kind of being in this space and having access to such a robust Rolodex as well, right? It's kind of nice that we, I'm talking to private equity buyers and investment banks as well. And they kind of just, it's kind of nice getting a phone call from a guy on Wall Street saying, hey, Matt, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, it's kind of cool that like, you know, I have all this access, to this Rolodex of people where I can not only do that, but I can flip deal flow around as well. You know, one investment bank introduced them to a private equity group. Those two can chat, right? And I get nothing in return, but what I do get in return is the value that I connected those two. And 
um, kind of being that staple of, of kind of that linchpin for people and just providing value to the marketplace. So there's a lot, there's so much opportunity out there. And I think what's important is, um, like you said, have a focus. And, and right now our focus is just doing outflow, but we might look at other acquisition opportunities in, in providing some kind of bolt-on deals and stuff, or potentially even get involved in some of them to some capacity as well. So we, me and my, me and my business partner are, are capitalists through and through. We love business and we love money. I'll be honest, we, we freaking love it. And we, and we love business in general, we like entrepreneurship. I love the game. I love the hustle. And so it's, I'm an opportunist, right? I'll, I'll, when something comes up and it seems like it makes sense according to what our vision is, or it kind of opens another vision lane that we think makes sense, we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll explore it. And like, I think like what you have right there, what you describe, it's, it's kind of like a superpower where you guys are able to generate demand and, and also acquire clients. So I, I see a correlation between, you know, that the ability to generate clients on demand, yeah. which is what basically <laughs> you guys do, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the combination between acquiring clients on demand and, and like scaling a business, like you have that power and yeah. that's it. <laughs> well, it's funny because like when I was... When I was, because I've, I've bought and sold a, a business to kind of start things off my entrepreneur career. And I remember for a while, I've clicked with marketing. And along the journey, I've always been trying to figure out kind of what's the one superpower I want to cling on to. And I kind of was getting sidelined by looking at these guys in finance and stuff and thought that was like, oh, if I just learned that, then blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. You got to find your X factor and kind of layer it on top of things. So maybe your X factor is finance, but you're also pretty okay at sales. But if you merge those two together, you become like a super monster within a space. And one thing I've always been good at is getting people's attention. Uh, I'm really good at it. I'm good at getting people's attention in some way. And I've always like, I've kind of always found this groove where I could reach out to celebrities or marketing gurus and get them on the phone or get them to send me an email back or write a whole newsletter about me. And I kind of started finding and hedging into that groove of, Hey, I'm pretty good at this outreach thing. And I realized over time from talking to people, like, hey, the top guy, like, for example, I started talking to investment banks and stuff saying, hey, what are your managing partners? What, what's their, like, what makes them the managing partners? And they said, dude, they know, they know how to make it rain. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, they know how to make it rain leads. Like, they know, they know how to bring in deal opportunities. So there's a saying one of my mentors told, said one day, and it just clicked. And I was like, you know what? Hedge down this path, go for it, which is he, he, he who can make it rain controls the game. If you can make it rain, you can you control the game. I've seen businesses literally fall apart or or that or the person they cannot fire the person because they are so good at bringing in deal flow. I mean they can't fire the best sales guy. They can't fire that guy that's bringing in all these opportunities whether it's from his Rolodex or for something else. So that's not to brag on me. What I'm saying is I think it's a skill set everyone should look at to some capacity or another, or at the very least understand it or get people on your team that's good at it and develop a system around it because your business will live or die off leads. And I know the saying is it lives or no, it lives or dies off cash. Yes, it's true. How do you get cash? By closing, by closing sales, whether that's raising capital or, or selling a product or a service. How do you get that? By getting a, a conversation or an opportunity started. So I would sincerely look at, especially when you're trying to grow your business to the first million or 10 million is looking at getting, having a strong distribution channel where you can develop lead flow and have that strong lead flow that you can then, you have a modality to convert them. And so it all starts that top, that very top of that value chain of, of getting inflow coming in by having some kind of outflow or distribution channel. So it's, I think it's a critical skill to understand or develop for any kind of entrepreneur in the marketplace at all, whether it's online, offline, 
doesn't matter. I think you need to learn how to knock on a cold door and generate that deal flow. That's that's phenomenal. And, I, and that makes me think what you're saying. It's, it's a lot of people talk about the unique ability. We're not going to get into that, but I know it's really powerful when you define like what's your unique ability. And I, I personally, to be honest, ha have struggled with that question. Right. I think like I'm still exploring and learning, but I love what you just said, which I noticed in, even in my own journey that when you combine two things, that's it. So for you guys yeah. listening, do not struggle with just one thing. Perhaps it's, it's a combination. It's right. either, you know, tap into industry or two business models yeah. or two skills and abilities yeah. or connecting to different worlds. So right. yeah, man, that's fascinating. So I think to wrap up here, what's the best place for people to contact you? I think the best place is probably LinkedIn or you can shoot me an email so you can find me on LinkedIn. I think it's Matt Curry or Matthew Curry. I think it's just Matt Curry. So M-A-T-T -T, and then it's C-U-R-R-I-E. There's no Y, it's I-E. So C-U-R-R-I-E. Uh, hit me up on LinkedIn, add me, connect there. That's probably the best place to hit me up. Uh, I'm not really active that much on Instagram. I don't want it to, to you know, to, to be there, but mostly LinkedIn is the best place to hit me up and and connect with me, shoot me a message. And uh, I'm always looking to, to have good conversations with great people. So that's the best place to reach me. Sounds great. Anything else that you would like to share with people um, trying to acquire and build their own outflow and... Yeah, I love the outflow, man. I gotta tell, I keep thinking about that. It's yeah, phenomenal. thanks, dude. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, whether you're trying to build a team in-house or you're considering maybe outsourcing it, let's have a conversation. Hit me up on LinkedIn or shoot me out an email. My email is actually gonna change. So we're changing our website to oatflow.capital. Right now it's oatflow.agency. So you can reach me at matt at oatflow.agency or matt at oatflow.capital. At the very least, I'll always be on LinkedIn, guys. So uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. So whether you're looking, if you're looking for new deals, you want to either bring it in-house and, and build it out, we might be able to help you. Or if you want to outsource it, hit me up as well. We can have a conversation. Fantastic, man. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your knowledge and your experiences. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise, man. Awesome. Awesome being here. Had fun. All right. This is it for this episode and we'll talk next week. Cool.